This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. Today we're going to remember Glenda Jackson, who died June 15th at the age of 87. Jackson had two careers. She was an Oscar-winning actress who left acting to become a member of British Parliament, where she served for 23 years. She was elected in 1992 and stepped down in 2015. We're going to listen back to the interview I recorded with her in 2019 after she'd returned to acting and was starring on Broadway in a production of King Lear as King Lear. She had already played Lear in a London production that opened in 2016 at the Old Vic. In 2018, she won a Tony for her performance in the Edward Albee play, Three Tall Women. Before serving in Parliament, she won Oscars for her performances in the 1969 movie Women in Love and the 1973 romantic comedy A Touch of Class. She also starred in the 1971 movie Sunday Bloody Sunday. She won two Emmys, playing Queen Elizabeth I in the 1971 BBC series Elizabeth R., which was shown in the U.S. as part of Masterpiece Theater. When I spoke with her, we started with a clip from the Broadway production of King Lear. Lear has decided that he's old and it's time to unburden himself of his responsibilities as king and divide his kingdom among his three daughters. No, we have divided in three our kingdom. And it is our first intent to shake all cares and busyness from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, crawl toward death. (laughs) Glenda Jackson, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you. The first thing people always seem to want to know is, why is a woman playing King Lear, and what's it like to be a woman playing Lear? So you first played him in 2016 at the Old Vic in London. Why did you want to play Lear? Who would refuse the opportunity to work in a play of that stature? I mean, it is such an extraordinary play. Like all of Shakespeare, essentially, he only asks us three questions. Who are we? What are we? Why are we? And this particular play, it's just astonishing. Human nature is immutable. And so, in a sense, it is the most contemporary play around at the minute. Um, We in England had been engaged in a kind of gender-bender war, really, and the marvellous company that was created and succeeded in winning those battles, um, they did all of Shakespeare's histories with all women casts. And so, in a sense... That battle was over. And what was really interesting, one of the really interesting things for me playing it was that nobody ever mentioned the fact that I was a woman playing a man, having seen the play. And also the other interesting thing I found in doing it, when I was a member of Parliament, part of my duties was to visit old people's homes, day centres, things of that nature. And as we get older those absolute barriers that define gender begin to crack. They begin to get a little bit foggy and break up. And if you think about it, I mean, when we're born, we teach babies, don't we, to be boys or girls. As we get older, we begin to explore, I think, rather more 
the alternatives to our defined gender. And that certainly for Lear is quite useful. I wanted to elaborate a little bit on how you see gender boundaries blurring or falling away with age and to apply it to your own life as well if you find it applicable. Well, I think I'm a bit of a cheat because when things are tough in a kind of direct way in my real life, I don't have any qualms about playing the old card. Do you know what I mean? I mean, certainly as far as our underground is concerned, um, young people do get up and, and offer me a seat. The first time it happened, I felt absolutely mortified. I now am beginning to get to the stage where I expect it and am mortified if it doesn't happen, but nine times out of ten it does. But in direct reference to the play, the things that he kicks out being, you know, he's a guy, no one during his entire life, and he's 80 years old in this play, has ever said no to him. And suddenly someone does say no to him, and it all begins to crack for him, not in that immediate moment, but that's the story of the play. And so those aspects of him which were overtly masculine, because that was the era in which he lived, the environment in which he lived, begin to move from absolute, I'm right and everybody else is wrong, that's a simplistic way of putting it, to actually evaluating whether he was always right. And he begins to doubt it, and that's very interesting. Are there lines from Lear that have the most meaning to you, either personally or that you find most powerful or dramatic to say as an actor? I try to avoid that. Um, I, I try to observe the world through the character's eyes, but people who see the play do point out lines that are particularly meaningful to them. I always rather regret that they do that because then it gets kind of stuck in my head and I have to find another way of finding it for the first time, if you see what I mean. I think I but do, that you don't want amazing. it to sound like a famous line. You want it to sound like like It is a speech, thought. It's, like it's, thought it's, you know, speech. it's a direct yeah. thought. I mm -hmm. mean, it's, it arises out of the scene that you're mm -hmm. trying to create with the other actors on, on the stage, yeah. But, so, I mean, you know, in one's own time, there are lines that sort of reverberate and echo, yeah. So we've been talking about you playing King Lear. Let's hear you as Queen Elizabeth I <laughs> in an excerpt okay. of your Emmy Award-winning performance in the BBC series Elizabeth R., which came to the U.S. as part of Masterpiece Theatre. So in, in this scene, you're the new queen. You're 25 years old and unmarried, and your council is trying to pressure you to marry quickly, a member of your council challenges you to accept a suitor in front of the whole court. And by the end of the scene, everyone around you is kneeling. And here's my guest, Glenda Jackson, with actor Esmond Knight. The Archduke Charles will be most happy to come to England, Your Majesty. And I shall be most happy to see him. Uh, but if he comes, uh, he will come here as your future husband. Ah, oh, well, as to that... Anything else would be unthinkable. I have often told the Imperial Ambassador... Uh, the Imperial I... Ambassador uh, does not know Your Majesty as well as I do. But he knows how to listen. Uh, the true Ambassador, Your Majesty, uh, listens to what is meant and not only to what is said. Then I will say again and mean it. The Archduke Charles may come to England as our guest. Uh, as your guest? And as the husband of your choice. I have not said that. 
But you have invited the Archduke Charles to your court. I have said he is welcome. Uh, very welcome, Your Majesty, I hope. Welcome as any other guest would be. I am glad to hear it. I shall write to King Philip and tell him that you have invited the Archduke Charles to England and that he comes here as your future husband. If he comes on those terms, he had best not come at all. Your Highness! He said he wished to come here. I have never invited him. I have never said I would marry him. I have never said I would marry anyone. Never! Your Majesty! Enough! There was a scene from Elizabeth R. with my guest, Glenda Jackson. So we've heard you as King Lear. We've heard you as Queen Elizabeth. Having played, uh, you know, fictional king and portrayed an actual queen, did it make you think of gender differences between kings and queens? Oh, well, very much so, because certainly as far as Elizabeth was concerned, I mean, let's face it, she'd had the most tumultuous upbringing, hadn't she? I mean, her mother's head was chopped off when she, Elizabeth, I think, was three. She had all these various stepmothers after, a couple of whom also went the way of all flesh at the hands of her father. Uh, Her sister, who took over the throne, was not uh, particularly in favour of her. And there was always this pressure upon her once she did become queen to marry to ensure that her line continued. And one of her extraordinary strengths, it seems to me, having read the histories in one thing and another, was that her great strength was that she didn't make a fast decision, which is in marked contrast to what Leah does. Um, She would vacillate. She would put things off. She would delay stuff. Um, And then if something happened, like, for example, the trial of Mary, Queen of Scots and her execution, she would blame everybody around her for having done something that she claimed she didn't want to happen. Now, she wasn't lying when she said she didn't want it to happen. She didn't want it to happen. And yet there must have been part of her that knew that it had to happen. But, of course... It was taking away the divine right of kings, even though at that time the ruler was a queen. So you've played uh, kings and queens. You've served in parliament. You were elected to parliament in 1992. You've mm-hmm. played powerful people and you've had political power, not kingly no, or queenly no, power. No, but <laughs> no, no, no. Backbenchers, I, I cannot stress this strongly enough. For me, one of the most humbling experiences was being a member of parliament. I mean, I give you, I mean, obviously, I think it's amazing that somebody puts an X next to your name. It's not just you, of course. I mean, they obviously support your party and hopefully that party's manifesto. But all members of parliament hold what we call advice surgeries and you hold them in the constituency and any constituent can come in and they would. And in some instances, they, well, in all, no, re, in the really serious ones, they sort of lay their life out on the table in front of you. You don't know them. They don't really know you. And not infrequently, their lives are tragic or disastrous through no fault of their own. And they come to their member of parliament because that member of parliament is their port of last resort. You can get a response to a letter. People will ring you on the phone. In my experience, I didn't always get the result that my constituent wanted. But without exception, whether I did or whether I didn't, they always said thank you. And that is very 
very humbling. Um, and it it is a great privilege to be elected, to be a member of parliament. And that kind of responsibility is something that really makes you realise who you are and you're pretty damn small. Yes. Okay. I can see what you're saying. You're helping people with constituent services and things like that. But you also uh, stood up against the Iraq war when Tony Blair joined with uh, President George George W. Bush. Um, So like you, you stood up to power in a way that's different from you know, being an actor, I mean, sure, you might want to stand stand up and object to direction that you're getting, but it's different than standing up to a prime minister who wants to take your country to war. Well, as I've had occasion to say, it was the first time in my experience of being a member of parliament that I had voted against my party's policy. And I presume rather like murder, once you do it for the first time, it gets easier <laughs> after. Why did you want to serve in Parliament? Anything I could have done. I mean, I was a member. I've always voted Labour. I've been asked by the party to do various things for them, raise money. I once did the worst party political broadcast ever, things of that nature. Um, And I'd been approached by various constituency parties to consider standing as a prospective parliamentary candidate. And in 92, the election was looming, and I think it was in 1989, I was approached by Hampstead and Highgate, which did indeed become my constituency. Anything I could have done that was legal, that got Margaret Thatcher and her government out of office, I was prepared to have a go at. I didn't expect to be selected. I don't think I really expected to win. Um, But we did win that seat. We didn't win the majority to put us into government until 97. But, yeah, that's why. What made you... This woman, this woman who said what had the suffragettes ever done for her that questioned whether there was such a thing as a society that had destroyed local government in many ways, which before her power seat, if that's what it was, you know, was responsible for delivering services to people in local environments. Every school in what became my constituency spent the teachers, parents, not infrequently the pupils, spent spare time trying to raise money to buy things like paper and pencils. I know it sounds ridiculous, but that was the case. As a woman who feels strongly about women's equality, mm-hmm. and I assume you consider yourself a feminist, was it disappointing to you that finally a woman becomes prime minister and she's, she's so conservative and stands for so many things that you are against? Well, I mean, the overwhelming disappointment actually was that my party didn't win. I mean, do you know what I mean? Even, I mean, at that time. But it was just that she seemed to me to be so out of touch with with what were the realities of life for the majority of people in my country. And yes, of course, it was a disappointment that the first woman elected as prime minister was her, but I think rather more at the time it was that she was a conservative. It was only of the years that one saw what f- were, for me, disastrous policies wreaking such damage. Let's hear what you had to say in Parliament 
after Margaret Thatcher died. And this was in 2013. And there were many tributes made in Parliament. And this was a day, I think, when most of the Labor members of Parliament stayed away. And so um, conservative members were saying, you know, giving many tributes to Margaret Thatcher and then used it up and <laughs> made a pretty scathing speech um, while conservative members of parliament basically uh, jeered you. So uh, let's hear what you had to say. We were told that everything I had been taught to regard as a vice, and I still regard them as vices, under Thatcherism was in fact a virtue. Greed, selfishness, no care for the weaker, sharp elbows, sharp knees, they were the way forward. We heard much over and will continue to hear over the next week of the barriers that were broken down by Thatcherism, the establishment that was destroyed. We can't take it. What we actually saw, the word that has been circling around with stars around it, is that she created an aspirational society. It aspired for things, as indeed one of the former prime ministers, who himself had been elevated to the House of Lords, spoke about selling off the family silver, and people knowing under those years the price of everything and the value of nothing. What concerns me is that I am beginning to see possibly the re-emergence of that total traducing of what I regard as being the basis spiritual nature of this country, where we do care about society, where we do believe in, in communities, where we do not leave people to walk by on the other side. That isn't happening now. Wow. <laughs> um, so... Did you expect that reaction when you decided to make those comments? Oh, yes, of course. I mean, I'd sat there in the chamber for several hours, as one does for these kind of events, before I was called by the speaker. And, yes, I mean, I sat there listening to her party rewriting history, as far as I was concerned. The United Kingdom that they were describing under Thatcher was not the one I'd lived in. It wasn't the one my constituents had lived in. And it certainly isn't the one that was there when she left. Now, you had said that you always get nervous before yes. Uh, yes. going on stage. And, and I'm wondering if that's changed with age in the sense that I know some people feel as they get older that they can take more chances and enjoy things more because... I did a play with the most marvellous actress called Mona Washbourne. It was called Stevie. It was about the poet Stevie Smith. And she, I think, Mona came, I think, from a theatrical family. She'd certainly appeared, I think, on a professional stage at a very young age, I mean, eight or nine. She had a very successful, highly honoured career. I mean, she was a marvellous, marvellous actress. Her reputation in the theatre was absolutely secure. She sat on the sofa before the curtain went up. I sat on a chair by her side. And every performance, she sat on that sofa and she would say, please, God, let me die. Please, God, let me die. And then the curtain went up and there she was. 
firing on all fronts. It doesn't get any less. In fact, I think the more you do, the worse it gets because you realise how desperately easy it is to act really badly and how very, very hard it is to act well. Well, it's been a pleasure to speak (laughs) with you. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. My interview with Glenda Jackson was recorded in 2019. She died June 15th. She was 87. After a break, we'll go back to 2005 and listen to my interview with Neil Diamond. The current Broadway show, A Beautiful Noise, is about Diamond and features his music. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Be My Guest with Ina Garten, a podcast from Food Network. Intimate and captivating conversations with new and old friends. Jennifer Garner, Frank Bruni, Emily Mortimer, and more. Listen to Be My Guest wherever you get your podcasts. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. There are a lot of issues on voters' minds right now. Six big ones could help decide the election. Guns, reproductive rights, immigration, the economy, health care, and the wars overseas. On the Consider This podcast from NPR, we will unpack the debates on these issues and what's at stake. You can listen to NPR's Consider This wherever you get your podcasts. We're going back into our archive to listen to our 2005 interview with Neil Diamond. His life is the subject of the current Broadway musical, A Beautiful Noise, which features his songs. In 2018, Diamond revealed he'd been diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. Neil Diamond started out writing songs for a music publishing company in the hopes that someone would record them. He wrote The Monkees' number one hit, I'm a Believer, but it was Diamond himself who made most of his own songs famous. Songs like Sweet Caroline, Solitary Man, Cherry Cherry, and Girl You'll Be a Woman Soon. As a lot of his contemporaries fell off the charts, he moved from teen pop to adult pop, including his duet with Barbra Streisand and his hits from his remake of The Jazz Singer. Before we get to the interview, let's hear the piece about him that our former rock historian, the late Ed Ward, recorded in 2011 after a compilation of his songs was released. Someone else but not for me Love was out to get me That's the way it seemed Disappointing on dead all my dreams Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a Probably the strongest negative reaction I've ever gotten to anything I've written was when I panned a Neil Diamond show during my stint at Austin's Daily Newspaper. His fan club newsletter picked it up, and for two and a half years we got letters denouncing me, the last of which came from Vanuatu in the South Pacific. 
But my disappointment in the show was based on remembering where Diamond had come from. Diamond was born in Brooklyn to emigrant parents in 1941 and got a guitar for his 16th birthday. Almost immediately, he started writing songs and performing them with a neighbor. He went from one unsuccessful record contract to another, from the most obscure to a one-single deal with Columbia. Next came a songwriting contract with Jerry Lieber and Mike Stoller, which kept him fed, but produced only six songs in one year. He'd been mentored by the great songwriting team of Jeff Barry and Ellie Greenwich, after Greenwich sang backup on a demo he'd cut. And after getting fired from Lieber and Stoller, he asked Barry and Greenwich if they'd take a chance on him. At that point, something happened. Barry and Greenwich scored him a deal with Burt Burns' new label, Bang, and his second single, Cherry Cherry, wound up in the top ten in 1966. Suddenly, he was writing more than he could record, so Talleyrand Music, the company Barry and Greenwich had set up with him, was placing his songs all over the place. Red Red Wine, for instance, found its way to the Jamaican expat community in London, where a guy named Jimmy James recorded it, only to be scooped by Tony Tribe, who put a reggae beat to it. Twenty-five years later, the British band UB40 recorded it on an album of the songs they'd grown up with, released it as a single, and topped the British charts and eventually many others, too, over an amazing two-year period. There was no doubt he was hot. The Monkees' version of I'm a Believer was 1967's top-selling song, and so it was no surprise when the Box Tops, led by Alex Chilton, chose a song of his to record the next year. Diamond was determined to have his own career and worked hard at it, even if he too sometimes recorded excellent versions of other people's songs.
things at Bang were untenable. Bang's view of who he was and his own idea were at odds with each other, and when he and the label locked horns over what his next single should be, it resulted in a lawsuit for ownership of his recordings, which went all the way to the Supreme Court, which found in his favor in 1977. Burt Burns, the label's head, had died during the course of it all, and by early 1968, Neil Diamond had signed to another label and was on his way to superstardom. That was the late Ed Ward, recorded in 2011. For many years, he was Fresh Air's rock historian. Now let's hear my 2005 interview with Neil Diamond. I think it's fair to say your first big break, correct me if I'm wrong, was when um, you had recorded a, a demo and um, the songwriters Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry heard the demo and they really liked you. And they some of their songs are Do Run Run, Chapel of Love. Um, Be My Baby. Be My Baby, yeah. So how did how did they hear you? I was making a demo. Usually when you sold a song to a publisher, they would allow you to go in and make your own demo, which was invaluable experience to me. But I went and made the demo and hired Ellie as a back singer which she did despite the fact that she was having huge hits she she liked to sing in the studios with her with the other girls and uh, so I hired her for this session and and she liked something about what I was doing my uh, writing or my singing and she brought me to her husband Jeff and he liked something about what I was doing I don't know if he liked the writing or the singing but one liked one and the other one liked the other so we started a, a working relationship. We were both working for the same music publisher, and uh, I kind of got let go by that music publisher, and I, I asked Jeff and Ellie if they were interested in producing me. In the first session that you did with them, you recorded Solitary Man. Did you like the idea of horns on this? I, I liked the idea of anything on those <laughs> records. I was, just, I, I was just thrilled to be right. there. Well, let's hear "Solitary Man," which, which I have to say, I think I think it's really a terrific recording. Um, Thank you. Yeah. So, okay, let's hear it. Um, this is your first hit, yes? Yes, I, if that you, you can recorded call it yourself. A hit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So this is Neil Diamond, "Solitary Man." The land was mine till the time that I found. Loving him Then Sue came along Loved me strong That's what I thought Me and Sue That died too Diamond. Now, did you write this song for yourself or for somebody else? No, I wrote this for myself. I had a contract with Jeff and Ellie, and I started to focus in on just what I wanted to do. And so Solitary Man was written for me and for the first sessions that I was to do with Jeff and Ellie. So how did Solitary Man change your idea of what you wanted from your musical life? Uh, once I had a chart record of my own, I was no longer a, a kid knocking around on the streets. I, I was now uh, 
Well, we didn't call them artists at that time. We called them vocalists. But I was a vocalist. And it was a whole different thing. I was writing for myself, so I had to really dig in and, and write as well as I possibly could. And I have to say, before that time, I don't know if I was doing that. I was just writing and writing and writing, maybe just to get an advance from a publisher. But there was not a lot of me in those songs. And Solitary Man was the first of a long line of, of me songs, uh, my experience songs. When, when you were working um, in, in, in the rock and roll Tin Pan Alley, uh, were you actually, and you were writing for music publishers, were you actually going to an office building every day to write? Um, when I was signed to a, a staff publishing company, a music company, I, I would go in uh, as often as I possibly could. The subway train from Brighton Beach, where I lived, uh, that took us to uh, New York University, went also a few more stops further to uh, Tin Pan Alley. So there was a lot of cutting of classes, going up and trying to peddle uh, the newest song, probably that I had written in one of the classes at school. So it was it was a, an, an attraction, it was a seduction that was just a couple of stops beyond NYU. And I unfortunately spent a lot of time skipping that uh, the NYU 8th Street stop and going up to the 49th Street stop, which is where Tin Pen Alley was. And that was great fun, too. It was that era when rock and roll had just come in and uh, anybody, anybody could get a listening to their music because the publishers didn't understand what rock and roll was and they were willing to listen to anybody and sign anybody that they thought might have a, the vaguest chance of, of having some success. So it was, a, it was an open game for, for a number of years. But then things got serious. I, I got married, I, I was having a baby on the way, and I had to get serious, enough with this fun. When you were working as a songwriter for publishers, writing for other people, were you writing for specific people? Were you writing with specific singers in mind? Well, that's usually how it went back then, although I, I was never a good enough writer to kind of write for some other singer to understand what they did best, the keys, the kind of song. Usually you were told that uh, so-and-so is coming up for a session in three weeks and uh, they need a song of this type, and it was usually as close as possible to the song that they had previously, which was a hit, if it was a hit. And you had to write a kind of like a, a copy of that in a way, because that's the way it worked in those days. You have a hit record, and your next record sounds should sound as much like the hit record as you can make it. But I wasn't very good at it. That's uh, probably why I spent uh, eight years down there in Tim Pan Alley and had very little, uh, very little success. Uh, nothing more really than selling a song and taking a small advance for it to get me through the week. We're listening to my 2005 interview with Neil Diamond. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? No matter what might be keeping you up, Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep. Mattress Firm will find you the right mattress from a wide selection of top brands at every budget. Plus, if you see a lower price somewhere else, they'll match it up to 120 nights with their low price guarantee. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. 
Restrictions apply. See mattressfirm.com or store for details. Support for this podcast comes from the Neubauer Family Foundation, supporting WHYY's Fresh Air and its commitment to sharing ideas and encouraging meaningful conversation. This message comes from NPR sponsor Planet Oat. While some podcast topics can be complex and pretty heady, Planet Oat oat milk is an uncomplicated no-brainer. It's rich, creamy, and an excellent source of calcium with vitamins A and D. Also, Planet Oat's unsweetened varieties have zero grams of sugar. It's great in coffee, cereal, smoothies, you name it. So next time you're at the grocery store, save the overthinking for the podcast and reach for the one that has it all. Planet Oat oat milk or visit planetoat.com for more. Let's get back to my 2005 interview with Neil Diamond. The current Broadway musical, A Beautiful Noise, is about his life and features his songs. Now, uh, the Monkees did a couple of your songs, I'm a Believer and A Little Bit Me, A Little Bit You. Um, did, did you write those with them in mind or for yourself? I'm trying to think of what the chronology was. Like you, mm. you start recording in, what, like 67? 66. 66, okay. And what, yeah. what year are the Monkees? Like is that after that? I think um, 67, something like that. I, I had recorded a couple of songs, including Solitary Man and Cherry Cherry, which was a big hit. And uh, because of that hit, um, the people who were producing the Monkees called and said, uh, we like Cherry Cherry, do you have any other songs? I said, well, I don't have anything like Cherry Cherry, but I have an album coming out soon, and I'll send it over and uh, take your pick. You know, it's funny, the common wisdom goes when telling the story of, like, songwriters from the Brill Building and the Beatles is that the Beatles changed everything after the Beatles band started writing their own songs, it drove out the professional songwriters. But of course, the Monkees are a band that's, you know, a kind of um, fabricated band copying the Beatles. <laughs> and and you have this tremendous success writing for them. And in that sense, like the Beatles' success inadvertently really helped you as a songwriter. Oh, yeah, no question about it. But it was not only in the sense of the monkeys doing a couple of songs. It was in the sense that the doors began to open for songwriters uh, who were able to sing. And uh, I just happened to be one of them who'd been knocking around the streets for years and now suddenly was getting a new and fresh listening to my work. So uh, the Beatles made an enormous change, as as did Bob Dylan. They They brought the songwriter up to... So up to the front of the line and said, you know, you guys do it. And it, it had a, de- a devastating effect on the music publishing business in Tin Pan Alley. But it's it, it opened up many doors for people like me. My guest is Neil Diamond. Here's his version of I'm a Believer. Someone else but not for me Love was out to get me Like the way it seemed Disappointing on good all my dreams Then I saw her face Now I'm a believer Not a I tried 
One of the things that has kept you um, so uh, musically successful over the decades is your tours. Um, Would you describe a little bit how you put together your idea of what a show should be? Um, It's a good question. Uh, I've I've never worked with a director. Uh, I like to put the shows together myself uh, with the help of a lot of other people, including the the band, my band, who uh, have been with me for many years. Uh, and we start right at the beginning. I have a huge blackboard in the studio, and we start with the songs that I want to include and that we haven't included in previous shows. Uh, I try to find a good opening song, uh, a good closing song, uh, which is usually, uh, traditionally for me, has been Brother Love's Traveling Salvation show because it kind of sums up what I'm about and what I'd like the world to be about. Um, and you fill in and you try to make something interesting and each song has to have something that's new and fresh and original about it, uh, even if it was written 30 years ago. What about figuring out what to wear for your shows? I never thought about it. Uh, I have a clothing designer. Uh, his name is Bill Whitten. He's been doing my stage clothes for 35 years now. And so I let Bill take the lead in that uh, I have comments obviously uh, things I like and don't like but uh, Bill uh, Bill handles that and I think he decided uh, in the mid 70s that he wanted to go with uh, glass beading and sparkly kind of things basically I think because no one else was using it and it would become mine so okay I tried it and uh I think it worked very well, although it's become a, a point of uh, uh, contention. I mean, just the fact that you bring it up is uh, is what has been happening over the years. I'll get a review for a show, and they'll think the show is wonderful, but they'll put down the shirt, which is terrific. I'd, I'd rather have them put down the shirt than something important. Uh, but I've been wearing those kind of shirts, and now it's maybe it's tapering off now. But uh, the shirts have been part of uh, part of my persona on stage for as long as I can remember. We're listening to the interview I recorded with Neil Diamond in 2005. We'll hear more after a break. This is Fresh Air. I'm Rachel Martin. You probably know how interview podcasts with famous people usually go. There's a host, a guest, and a light Q&A. But on Wildcard, we have ripped up the typical script. It's a new podcast from NPR where I invite actors, artists, and comedians to play a game using a special deck of cards to talk about some of life's biggest questions. Listen to Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mattress Firm. How do you sleep at night? Mattress Firm can help anyone sleep at night. Mattress Firm's sleep experts receive 200-plus hours of training annually to help you get your best rest. Upgrade your sleep with a Tempur-Pedic mattress made with a -a one-of-a-kind, infinitely adaptable temper material for exceptional support to help alleviate aches and pains. Get matched at Mattress Firm's Memorial Day sale and sleep at night. This message comes from NPR sponsor Redfin. 
Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and gives personalized recommendations based on the homes that you like so you can find the home that's just right for you. You can favorite homes, share listings with others, and even schedule tours with a local Redfin agent all in the app. When you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process, and they know how to help you win the right home at the right price. So download the Redfin app to get started today. I want to ask you about another song that you wrote and recorded, a big hit for you, Sweet Caroline, which is now uh, played at Red Sox games at Fenway Park, and maybe you, you know the story of, of why <laughs> of why that is. But let's start with the song itself. Is there a story behind the writing of the song? Yeah, I think so. I was I was heading down to Memphis for my first recording session down there, and there were some producers I wanted to work with, and uh, I only had two songs written. And in those days, uh, a session was three hours, and, and you usually had three songs that you recorded. So the night before the session at some motel in Memphis, I, I knocked out this song, Sweet Caroline. It was one of the fastest songs I've ever written. And we recorded it the next day, and uh, it became one of my biggest songs, if not the biggest song. But uh, songs usually don't come like that. There's usually a lot of work and, and teeth gnashing and and agony and torment over any of these songs. But that one just popped out, and there it was, and uh, and here it is now. Still, people can sing it. It's also sung a lot in bars. Well, the fact is that it's it's fun and easy to sing with. And I think that uh, that's the bottom line as far as that song is concerned. It's easy to sing. It's fun. People like to sing it. Uh, and that's why it's popular in bars, because anybody can sing it, no matter how many drinks you've had. Well, Neil Diamond, thank you very much for talking with us. Oh, my pleasure, Terry. Where it began I can't begin to knowing But then I know it's growing strong Wasn't the spring And spring became the summer Who'd have believed you'd come along And Touching hands Reaching out Touching me Touching you My interview with Neil Diamond was recorded in 2005. In 2018, he revealed he was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. The Neil Diamond musical, A Beautiful Noise, is currently on Broadway. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll feature our interview with Janelle Monet. She grew up wanting to perform on Broadway, but became famous for her Afro-futurist funk, soul, and hip-hop. She also co-starred in the films Glass Onion, Hidden Figures, and Moonlight. 
Monet, who identifies as non-binary, has a new album called The Age of Pleasure. I hope you'll join us. To keep up with what's on our show and get highlights of our interviews, follow us on Instagram at NPR Fresh Air. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Saman, Anne-Marie Boldenado, Teresa Madden, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorrock directs the show. Our co-host is Tanya Mosley. I'm Terry Gross. Far, we've been traveling far Without a home But not without a star It seems so far away We're traveling light today In the eye of the storm In the eye of the storm Home To a new and a shiny place This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Do you ever wish you could get your stories in three hours rather than three minutes? Or maybe you're sick of doom scrolling, getting your news in bits and pieces. That is where Embedded comes in. We bring you documentary series that will change the way you think about things. Find us wherever you get your podcasts.